Most sports fans are aware that the Olympics come around every four years, but many may not be aware that the Olympic athletes compete in those sports year-round. My guest today explains how World Championship Sports Network brought those events to viewers in the United States on a regular basis, what starting a sports network is like, and we'll find out what the best advice he's received working in sports broadcasting is, next on Sports in the Making. Thank you for joining me on Sports in the Making, a podcast where we find out about the people who work in sports and sports broadcasting, find out what they do, and how sports comes together. I'm your host, Don Cardona, and this is Episode 9. And just a quick note, you will hear in this podcast the word sports quite frequently. I've tried to look for another synonym for it, but I just can't seem to find anything that embodies the word itself. So... I hope you understand that you're going to hear the word sports a lot. All right, we're in the year 2020. That much is obvious. And in case you weren't aware, it is an Olympic year. The Summer Games will take place in Tokyo in July and August, and NBC will be covering all the action on their family of networks. My guest today is Dean Walker, and we go back more than 20 years, first meeting at TV Games Network, or TVG, a horse racing network. He's been a longtime friend, and he continues to make an impact in the sports broadcasting arena. Dean has worked in many different roles throughout his career, both on the technical side and the production side. He's been Senior Vice President of Production with Universal Sports Network and Coordinating Producer with NBC Sports, overseeing personnel and covering almost every kind of sport imaginable. In this episode, we'll talk about what goes into working on the Olympics, how he's been a part of multiple startups, what goes into producing sporting events from around the world, and how presenting international sporting events can be a challenge for the U.S. audience. Thank you, Dean, for being a part of this Sports in the Making podcast. I'm glad to be here, Don. What is it about television production that makes you stay a part of it for as long as you have? You know, overall, we all kind of get into television or broadcasting, film, you know, any of those. It's because of the visual arts and the, basically the ability to have a medium to do storytelling. Sports, to me, um, has always been you know, attractive because of the fact that I'm a former athlete. But also, sports are probably the greatest reality show that's ever been created. We've watched the evolution of reality shows over the years, which I frankly am not an audience. I'm not part of that demographic because to me, there's nothing more compelling than sports. You have the heroes, you have the villains, you have the victories, you have the tragedies, you have all the compelling storylines, not just what's happening on the field. But what happens before a competition ensues. And so to be able to follow those and to bring those to light in basically for the television audience or now more and more and more uh, the on-screen audience, whether it be your phone, your tablet, streaming services, all those different venues gives you an opportunity to really bring out the struggle the competition, everything that goes along with sporting competition. How did you get into sports broadcasting? Because it's not a traditional way that most people would think, you know, studying at a a broadcasting school or, you know, any other route. My career path has definitely been non-traditional. I didn't go to school 
or television, radio, or film. I actually have a degree in history and a minor in English. When I was in college, I was working for a production company at the time, and I started taking classes in the department at the university I was at, and I was finding that I was actually learning more by doing hands-on work than I was from the professors or the books. So my intention was to end up being a teacher because that's my entire family is made up of teachers. But the more I worked in the business, the more the more I was intrigued, the more I wanted to do it, the more I wanted to have that venue for storytelling. So I ended up moving to Los Angeles to try to get my foot in the door. And, you know, the first couple of years kind of struggled because there were, it's a very hard to get your first opportunity because in this industry, it's a lot about who you know and getting that right. first opportunity. But it's also important that when you do get your foot in the door is to make the most of that opportunity. So when I got my first opportunity, it was with Fox Sports in Los Angeles, but it was one, with one of their subdivisions. They had just launched Fox Sports World and Fox Sports Deportes. And so that was focusing more on primarily soccer, but other international sports. And that's why they got the moniker Fox Sports World, because you were looking at soccer, rugby, Gaelic games. Australian rules football. And so they were kind of the first ones to really start to bring international sports into the United States. And so I started there as an AD associate director, but I took that opportunity to really see what else I could do or what else I could learn. That turned into opportunities with, at the time, which was Fox Sports West, doing one of their radio simulcasts. At that time, the director, Chip Terrell, gave me a great opportunity because he was directing and also TDing his own show. So I asked him, is it okay if I come in and I'll TD for you on my own time because I want to learn how to do it? So he gave me that opportunity to come in and I worked for free. It wasn't mm -hmm. on the company dollar. And I learned how to TD, and that branched out into doing other technical directing jobs, such as College Football Saturday, then becoming a technical supervisor. So I took that opportunity to really grow my skills and really try a bunch of different things and learn. Then from there, I got an opportunity with a startup network called TV Games which had, hadn't launched yet. It was a true startup, and, uh, which launched in, I believe it was June of 1999. That's correct. And I was, I was hired as their senior technical director, again, because I'd taken the time to learn everything I could. So I was brought in to help launch that network, and which was really groundbreaking at the time because it was a, a network that was focused on not just horse racing, but giving people at home the opportunity to participate in the horse racing, like you go to the track, but through wagering. Mm -hmm. And the technology was brand new where you could actually utilize your set top box or your cable box to place wagers on the races that you would see throughout the day. 
groundbreaking. Uh, and so it was that opportunity to go do something totally brand new, but not just make it a, a horse racing network, but it was also entertainment, you know, putting out you know the stories that we have always told and that are always vital to sports broadcasting, getting to know the jockeys, the trainers, the horses, going to the tracks and, you know, interacting with the fans is all brand new at the time. And so that was really exciting. So after many years there, I got the opportunity to go from there to work for a network, another startup called World Championship Sports Network. And what was intriguing with them at the time was they launched as a, and this was in 2005, as an internet streaming service, something that was nobody had heard of before. There was no such thing as over the top or OTT or a, you know, what we now know from Netflix, Disney Plus, ESPN Plus. None of that existed at the time. That was kind of groundbreaking. But when they brought me in was to help them launch just from, you know, transition from them being an internet streaming company only to becoming a cable sports network, because that was my specialty. So I helped launch that network as their, basically as a coordinating producer. And that eventually evolved into what was Universal Sports Network. That transition came about because taking a step back, World Championship Sports Network focused primarily on international sports, but not just international sports, but the Olympic sports that we all know. Everything from alpine skiing all the way down to wrestling. Because we were working in the Olympic sports realm, that caught the attention of NBC. As we all know, NBC's flagship sports programming are the Olympics. In 2008, NBC purchased a minority stake in World Championship Sports Network, and that's when that transitioned to Universal Sports Network. So that became a partnership between the group that founded WCSN and now NBC. We worked partnership to bring things like the World Alpine Championships, the World Track and Field Championships, International events that happen all year round, because a lot of people don't realize in the Olympic sports world, these athletes don't just compete once every four years. They have regular seasons, just like a football player, a baseball player, a basketball player does. So all those events we would bring in and broadcast, not only broadcast in a traditional sense over the air or cable network, but we also would stream them on the Internet. Eventually, NBC purchased the entirety of Universal Sports. We went through a transition where Universal Sports went away, and we were providing all that content to the multiple platforms of NBC, whether it be NBC, the network, NBCSN, or on other properties that NBC owned. Then eventually, in July of 2017, we launched the Olympic Channel and again did the same mission that Universal Sports had, but now under the the umbrella of the Olympic sports world. So that's kind of my ride. And now I have worked in some capacity for seven different Olympics. I will be working again with NBC for the upcoming Tokyo Games. It's been an odd journey 
that I don't think many other people in this industry have gone through. Now, I was a traditional stick and ball sports person, meaning that it was mostly team sports like baseball, football, basketball. And then we met at TVG covering horse racing. I've been a part of three startups, but you've been a part of five. What goes into creating a linear network from the production side? You know, we may not see many of those, at least how we know them now in the future, because everything seems to be going online. Uh, I completely agree with you that the days of startup cable sports network are probably past. The technology and basically the overall environment has allowed the venue to change in a lot of different ways. But I think the principles apply to both, you know, wherever you try to launch or wherever you try to show sports content, if it's a new a new venue, particularly in the fact that when it comes down to it, content is key. Content always drives what you're doing, but also at the same time, you still have to find the storytelling aspect that goes along with it. So it's identifying what is your content going to be. That's the the key part of any start startup. Bringing in the the right people that have a passion for that type of content, not only a passion, but a willingness to work really, really, really hard. Startups are great in the fact that I've always been attracted to them in the fact that you get to make your own rules. You're not working with a template that's already been created and established. So you get the opportunity to try new things, to to see really what resonates with your audience. And I think that's the key thing when you go in in that startup mentality is you don't always have to bring your traditional way of doing things to the table. You can start to really bring new ideas and basically new methodology to what you're doing and really try to see if you can make something new. And that's what some of the things that you you have to have that mentality if you're trying to create something different that, you know, works and sometimes it doesn't work. Now, with your experience on the international side, there are so many sporting events out there that are not typical to the U.S. audience. I'm putting you on the spot a bit here. How many sports can you name that you've covered or been a part of in your career? We would have to be here for about an hour. Right now, (laughs) off the top of my head, I feel I could competently produce over 50 different sports. Name some of those sports you've produced. There probably isn't an Olympic sport I haven't produced in some capacity. So we're talking alpine skiing, cross-country skiing. There's also, for a lot of people, they don't know, you know, they don't know things in the cycling world because there's not just road cycling, there's cyclocross, there's BMX, there are track cycling. You go into track and field, there's not just the track and field events, but there's also cross country, there's marathon. For some reason, somehow, I've become one of the, you know, experienced rugby producers in the United States. I've done international sports in some capacity that nobody's even heard of, like Sapactacra or Jabadi. There are so many sports out there, and there's so many different opportunities to take those sports and create new storytelling opportunities. Like I said, I, I would probably have to sit down someday and write out all the sports I've produced. 
but it's interesting that even though I have done the traditional ball and stick sports and the big four in the U.S., you'd be surprised how many other sports are out there that are maybe not recognized in the United States, but boy, they are recognized around the world. When you're talking about producing these sports, you or your production staff obviously can't be everywhere. And the model for World Championship Sports Network and Universal Sports was to bring in what we call world feeds and then repackage them with our own announcers, graphics, and storylines. Explain how all that worked. So that was one of the things that you know I didn't realize at the time, but a lot of people don't realize, is that many of the sports that are happening around the world, they create what's called a world feed. And the world feed is designed basically so it can be retransmitted all around the world and taken in and either shown raw to that market or that country or to be repackaged, as you said. So it gives you the opportunity to bring in a world feed because it's fully produced. It comes in with multiple camera angles, with graphics, with replays. You have the opportunity because they have what's on there, what's called international sound, which is basically just the sounds that are coming from the event. And then you can add your own announcers. You can take the opportunity to add your own graphics or add your own features. So that was the model because it is very, very expensive, as you say, to travel around the world to cover sporting events. Technology has advanced to the the point where you bring in these different feeds from around the world and you're able to show them to the United States. That's where you have to think in more business terms than just strictly as your storytelling side of things is how can I do this cost effectively, reaching an audience that I know that's here in the United States. You know, rugby is a perfect example is it's a very tight knit, but small audience in the United States, but they are so rabid and passionate to be able to see the rugby competitions from the rest of the world, because in places like England, France, in New Zealand, South Africa, Australia, it's their football, it's their NFL. We have such a expat or immigrant community in the United States for them to have the opportunity to see the sports they grew up in their homelands. It's very important. And so to be able to bring those in, repackage them, and put them out was the model for Universal Sports and WCSN, which kind of created the model. There's those opportunities to, again, content is key, is to reach out, go out in the rest of the world and find that content and bring it in And then to now build your audience in the United States. That was always the model for those two networks. So what is the challenge for presenting a sporting event that's unusual or not well known to viewers here in the U.S., but maybe to viewers who have come from another country where those sports are their passions? How do you present that sport to a new audience? The first thing I have always done as a producer is, again, you know, of these 50 plus sports that I have produced, most of them I had no idea. So I had to learn the sport. I had to learn it from the ground up. So I had to learn the rules and you know how the game functions. And then I had to learn and look at it, okay, as a producer, how do I put this on television? How do I make it make sense? Not only in trying to explain how the, the sport works, but you know, we are in a commercial television market in the United States. So you have to be able to format 
these sports to be able to get in commercials and get in these other things. And so there's so many different challenges. And the other major challenge that you face is you're not in control of what you're seeing. You don't get to sit in the truck and get to call which camera you're looking at or what you're going to replay. You're at the whim of whatever happens on the world feed. So those are the biggest challenges is you got to learn it and then you got to figure out how to broadcast it in especially in a space that you're not in control of it. So those are some of the biggest challenges. And one of the ways I've always looked at it and I have explained to people, I'll use rugby as an example. Rugby will usually fascinate football fans in the sense that it's very similar. You have hard hitting action, you have a ball, you have people going all over the place. And so they watch it and they think, wow, that's really cool. I have no idea what's going on. So I've always said it's like going to an Italian opera. You can think it's the most beautiful singing in the world that you've ever heard. But if you don't understand Italian, you don't know what's going on on stage. And so that's the way I have always approached doing these international sports is I've got to be able to translate what's happening in that competition in a way that one educates a new audience who has never seen it, but at the same time doesn't insult the hardcore or very passionate or very knowledgeable fan of that particular sport. So there are so many levels of challenges that you always have to approach it one step at a time. And so when we first brought in rugby and universal sports, it was, you know, you had to look at it as building blocks. Okay, this is the first thing we're going to do. Now we're going to add this next layer. Then we're going to add this next layer. That way you you have to build it over time because you're not going to get a, a, a diehard rugby fan the first time they watch it. But we want to give them enough to bring them back so they want to learn more. And that applies to every single sports that I've ever covered in this international sports arena. Well, one thing I've discovered is that it's not just the sport that's coming into the building. It's you have to get up to speed on it as a producer. And that can be a challenge, understanding the storylines, the flow of the sport, the rules. How do you find announcers that can present that sport so that people can understand it? I mean, we've worked with announcers who have done American type sports, but they also get a crash course if they do work on a new or unusual sport. Some of them may have never even seen it until they get into the studio. What are the qualities that those kinds of announcers have or need to have in order for you to hire them? I'll break it into two parts because I look at it different because the roles are different between a play-by-play announcer and a color commentator. The play-by-play announcers that we have always brought in have to be versatile. They just cannot come from the baseball, football, basketball world. They have to be able to adapt and learn. I mean, learning is the key component here. So we've had a stable of announcers that we've been able to feel like, I always call them utility players. We can throw them on anything because they will reach out to us. We'll get them caught up on how the sport works. We'll connect them with the color commentator and the analyst so they can have a crash course into what they're going to be calling. But then in that environment, The play-by-play is there to set up, basically get the color commentator in there to do the explaining of how the sport works, to, to tell the stories of the athletes they know personally because they've either competed with them or they know them. And so those are the key things. 
you've got to be able to be a traffic cop. You've got to be able to navigate, you know, when's the right time to be calling the action? When do you let the moment play? On the color commentary side, you've got to be able, first of all, you know the sport. We, we know that you are an athlete, you've competed in the sports for a year, but you've got to be able to talk the sport. You've got to be able to explain the sport. But most importantly, you need to be able to transfer or transmit your passion for your sport that you've had, you know, been involved with for such a long time. You got to be able to transmit that passion to the audience. So then you start to pull them in where they want to learn more and more about what they're seeing. Those are the things is that you got to be able to speak well, you got to be able to be knowledgeable, but you got to be able to be passionate. And those are the things that I think we have always sought to identify with our announcers for these sports that, that people have never seen before. All right. I'm talking to Dean Walker, sports production executive and coordinating producer. You know, Dean, one of the things I've admired about you is your passion for those sports that aren't traditional, including Paralympic sports. How do you view those types of sports and what is important about them to you? Paralympic athletes are probably some of the greatest athletes in the world. If you consider the challenges that they are facing when they get into a sport such as wheelchair basketball, such as wheelchair rugby, such as visually impaired swimming or track and field, sled hockey, and sled hockey, all those sports, to consider that they are not only dealing with whatever physical challenges, but also basically what got them there. There are so many of our American Paralympic athletes that are wounded veterans who have lost an arm, a, you know, a leg, who've lost their vision, hearing, any of those things that they, they did serving for their country. So they've gone through such a traumatic experience to turn around and find sport to basically not only be part of their recovery, but also to excel in an elite fashion. I challenge a lot of able body athletes to get in the wheelchair and do what they do. It's unbelievable. The physical strength, the physical dexterity it takes to do those things. And that's what I love about the Paralympic athletes. I love bringing those stories you know, to the audience to understand what their journey was like to be like an everyday person, but something changed their life so traumatically. And now they're excelling. They're just amazing athletes. So to be able to connect with them and bring out what great, great athletes they are, that's truly a passion. All right. We talked briefly before with over-the-top programming. Those events are more readily available to fans and viewers. So let's go back to World Championship Sports Network again. That was one of the first over-the-top offerings starting in 2005. How did it work then, and how do you see it now? And what is the future of how things will be produced, especially with more and more networks producing games and events at home in their studios? Well, it's always fascinating to me, uh, and I've heard... It, this happened in other industries where you came along too early. You know, Atari talks about Nolan Bushnell, who founded Atari, 
he talks about how he created this arcade console that you would go to and you would buy products with ahead of its time. And it failed because it was too early. And I think in some ways, World Championship Sports Network was ahead of its time. It was right at the, you know, the pioneering level of the over the top. It's just people weren't ready to watch things on their computers or their tablets. Now we've seen the evolution and we've seen, you know, technology was the basically the hindrance. Now it's what is making everything happen in the industry. I don't think, and this is me speculating, I don't think our traditional television will ever go away. But I think the true forefront of sports broadcasting right now is the streaming service or the streaming capabilities. It'll always be there as a hybrid, but now because of cost, you don't, it costs less to transmit, it costs less to bring in these events. It's now more cost effective to bring these events to a viewer, especially a very passionate viewer that may be only a small percentage of the overall market. So when you look at it, those terms, yes, you do have to be. You always have to remember sports broadcasting is a business and the business side of things does dictate that you do have to do things cost effectively. So as you mentioned, the at home or the Remy model will continue to grow as technology gets better because you won't always have the resources to be on site for every event that you are trying to broadcast. You always want to be able to service your fans, but at the same time, you have to be a business person and you have to basically walk that line. The Super Bowl will always be the Super Bowl, but there are all sorts of other events out there that people want to see. So you've got to be able to be cost effective when doing it. As Senior Vice President of Production with Universal Sports Network, what were your responsibilities both on the TV production side and the business side? In that role, I was overseeing every single event that was coming in to Universal Sports and then overseeing how it was going out. That would be in charge of determining which announcers we would have, which production teams would be assigned to specific events. And then also creating the model or the basically the template for how we were doing those things, how we were repackaging or accentuating an event, looking at what kind of features we were going to run. That would always go through me. What kinds of graphics or sponsored elements, those types of things would go through me. So on the production side, we would always think in terms of how can we make this the best possible thing we can, despite the fact we don't have control over what we're seeing. That was the ultimate challenge in then training up our production teams to be able to do that. On the business side, it was working with our other departments, such as sales. What opportunities could we create in a world feed? 
where we could attach a sponsor to? Would it be a graphic just to simply for, you know, the full, you know, the full page results, you know, the, the final results brought to you by this sponsor? Or was it the presenting sponsor of the entire event? Or was it a sponsor coming in and creating custom content that goes along with the event? That's where the business side overlapped with the production side is creating those opportunities. And then also, you got to be looking at the bottom line all the time. Are we doing this in the most cost-effective manner possible? It's, you know, very incumbent upon us, and especially now that we're in the age of cord cutting and losing revenue from not having all the cable subscribers, how you continue to do those things in a cost-effective manner, but still be storytellers, still having the opportunities to translate and bring the stories of the individual athletes or the sports or the events to the audience. That was always my role as an executive at Universal Sports is basically walking that very fine line of doing great broadcast, which we always strive to do, but always watching the bottom line. Okay, Universal Sports produced a significant amount of programming. I know that about more than 1,600 hours in a year, if I'm not mistaken. So how did you work with programming to decide what to show, and how did you make it all fit into the programming schedule? Because I imagine it was a huge juggle. It is, and especially in the sense that when you're doing international sports, you're working on international time, especially in the winter months, for example. Most of the events are happening in Europe, and they're happening in daytime, which means they're happening early morning in the United States. So you have to balance the desire to want to show something live, but is it worth showing it live at 2 o'clock in the morning? As the senior vice president, I would work directly with programming to determine where those sweet spots were. When do we know that the audience is going to be tuning in for a specific event from Europe or from China or from Australia? Creating that grid, it, there's a lot of nuance that goes, on, goes into it because you're trying to satisfy your audience, but at the same time, you're also having to deal with the reality of the clock. But that's where... The streaming, especially in those days with Universal Sports, really came in to, you know, basically we knew the value of the streaming component was that the people who wanted to watch it live would get up, turn on their computers and watch it live early in the morning. And that would give us an opportunity to take that live feed that we've already received and really then turn around and customize it for the American audience who's getting up later or watching it on a DVR. And that's where it gave us our opportunity to connect with the newer audience that would be flipping around and stop and see something that they liked. That's where programming and, uh, and production always worked hand in hand to give the opportunity to maximize the audience for the live events, but then to give production the opportunity to do the storytelling side of things and really build a show that is built to both the hardcore audience and the new audience. There's no formula that went behind it. It was a lot of just experience and knowing that what we're dealing with as far as the overall audience is concerned. You know, as they say, it takes a village. That part definitely took a village. 
man, not only were you involved in production and sales, but you had a hand in actually acquiring those events, right? I definitely worked with the acquisition team on identifying and working to acquire different sporting events. As I said earlier, you know, content is key. And especially in this world where there's so many different sporting events out there is identifying what will resonate with your audience. And then also, is it cost effective to purchase the rights of that? And so I worked with the acquisition team from the production standpoint of, is this something we should bring in? Is this something that we can turn around for our our American audience? Is this something that we can do cost effectively? So I worked with our acquisition team to bring in events such as the Rugby World Cup, the Boston Marathon, very niche sports like the World Orienteering Championships. People may never have heard of orienteering, but it's a competition kind of like cross-country running, but you're given a map and a compass, and you have to, as quickly as possible, navigate the course, all your different stops, and finish the race. And again, a sport that's hugely popular in Europe and nobody's heard of here. Looking at all those different sports that are out there, is there an opportunity to bring those in and work them into your programming grid? So that was definitely part of my responsibilities with Universal Sports. Okay, transitioning into some sports our audience is more familiar with, the Boston Marathon. Universal Sports had a big part in developing what we see from that coverage today on NBC. How do you view what many would consider is one of the most prestigious events in the world? The Boston Marathon really was one of the flagship events for Universal Sports. If I remember correctly, we originally acquired the Boston Marathon in 2011, but we treated it like we had our other sports where we were taking in the world feed, adding commentary and, you know, kind of trying to build it at the time for our audience, because we knew at Universal Sports, we had a very large audience that was in our endurance category, which meant, you know, marathons, triathlons, Ironmans, etc. So it just turned out that the first year that we were on site producing our own shows was 2013, the year of the bombing. Because of that tragedy, we really had to rethink how we wanted to approach this event in 2014. We knew that a lot of the world was going to be paying attention to that event, but we wanted to make sure we were working hand in hand with the Boston Athletic Association to show that Boston was not going to be stopped from holding this marathon. So we wanted to make sure that we honored the people who suffered in the bombing, but we also showed that the resilience of Boston, Boston strong just wasn't a saying. It was real when you were in Boston in 2014 and you could feel it. You can feel that attitude of nothing is going to stop this marathon ever. And we wanted to make sure that we were able to show that to the television audience, what this meant to the community, not just the Boston community, but the community at large, the running community, the the American community, the world community. If you ask me what are the, the 
greatest events I ever worked on, it would be the 2014 Boston Marathon. To be there to experience the people of Boston and how how resilient they were. But then to see Med Kovlesky come down Boylston Street, grabbing an American flag, pumping his fist in the air, and to be the first American to win the Boston Marathon in over 30 years. There, there was no other moment like it. To stand there and to hear the crowd erupt the full stretch of Boylston when seeing him carry that flag was a memory that will never, ever go away from me. Yeah. And it was a, it was a, almost a surreal moment for me. I really can't describe the feeling that I had when that did happen. Uh, it was just an amazing experience. Um, when we put together the production plan for that, I remember it was months of planning, multiple revisions of script writing, edits, and everything that goes into the pre-production side of it, knowing the importance and the significance of that 2014 marathon. How did you feel about going into that event, knowing that there's a lot of eyeballs on it and a lot of pressure to, to make sure that it was right? Oh, absolutely. I agree with you. And I think that if you asked earlier kind of my roles or the role of a coordinating producer in, in an event like that, it's to make sure that, first of all, the the production team and the team all around it has a clear vision of what you're trying to convey to the audience and making sure that all your efforts are focused on that message in that case, because this was a different sporting event at the time because of what had happened the the year before that. So making sure that all your team members have the same vision. We couldn't have wrote wrote a better script of Meb winning that race. It it was just true providence. And so one of the things I try to tell younger people getting into this industry, don't get locked into your story going into an event. The event is going to dictate what you do. You have to be prepared for anything. I feel that our team was prepared for Meb to win that race because we had looked at it from all different angles and we wanted to make sure that the first story foremost was the resiliency of Boston people. And it just all came together with him coming across that finish line. When you're preparing for an event as large as the Boston Marathon was that year, But you can also translate that to events like the Super Bowl or the Stanley Cup Finals is you you have to prepare. You have to basically know everything that's leading up to that moment. So when the moment starts to develop or the moment starts to happen, you're able to react. And that's the great part about being in this industry is you're never sure what's going to happen. But in those moments where the moment becomes so big and you reacted well or you reacted, you know, just that thing you never really anticipated and you were able to translate to the audience, that's what makes it satisfying. Well, talking about big moments, um, the Olympics are coming up later this year. Tons of big moments in that. You've been a part of seven Olympic Games in various capacities throughout your career. What did you do on the last Olympics for NBC? For the last Olympic Games, the Pyeongchang Games, I was one of these at-home supervising producers. For the Olympics, there's usually two units. There is the 
production unit and the operations unit that are on site at the games. Then there are the production and operations teams that are U.S.-based. So I worked in that capacity of overseeing the production teams on the U.S. side of the operations. So what that meant was, you know, coordinating the different crews that were working on the various events. The, the thing you have to remember about the Pyeongchang Games was this was the first time that there ever was 24-hour, seven-day-a-week coverage of the Olympic Games, and that was primarily on NBCSN, but it was also went across all the different networks, USA, CNBC, the network itself. And so a lot of those different sports were being coordinated on the, the domestic side of the operations. And so that was part of, I was part of the team that was overseeing all the different shows, all the different events that were running through the U.S. facility and being sent out to the, the American audience on the different networks of NBC. How hectic is it managing all of those sports coming in at all hours of the day? That was probably one of the greatest challenges of my career for many different reasons. First of all, because the the Olympics were happening in South Korea and we were being live for most of the time, we were having to work on Korean time. So basically, if something was happening at 3 p.m. in Korea, that meant it was happening at 3 a.m on the East Coast. That was a definite challenge, not only for us in the, you know, management roles, but for everybody who was, you know, basically having to shift their body clocks to work on Korean time. It was very challenging in the fact that we were coordinating multiple sports coming into uh, the facility all simultaneously. We'd have to make sure it was getting to the proper production group who was working specifically on that sport. And then all of that content was having to get to the proper network. We would have three, sometimes four different control rooms going simultaneously. We'd have multiple playback rooms doing different network shows simultaneously. It was probably the most intricate operation I've ever been a part of because there were so many different moving parts going across so many different NBC properties that you always had to keep your eye on everything that was going on. That is true of any Olympic Games because, you know, let's, let's compare it to FIFA World Cup. There may be two or three soccer games going on at the same time, but it's not the same as 10 to 15 to 20 different sports happening at the same time that you're trying to get out to your audience that is consuming the Olympic Games. When you look at it from that perspective, the Olympics are probably one of the greatest sports broadcasting challenge anybody can take on. Well, speaking of that, what would you like sports fans to know about what it takes to actually put an event like that on TV, whether it is the Super Bowl or the Olympics? One thing to always realize about every sports broadcast you see is there so much going on other than what's happening on the field. And it's so much more involved than just the production team that may happen to be on site or in a studio. There's so many different 
roles in the sports television industry. There's more than just the producer, the director, the audio operator, the camera operators. You've got to think about the people who are programming the commercial inventory, the people who are selling the commercial inventory. There are the people who are working on just securing the rights for the event you're seeing. There are people who are working on some of the legal aspects, such as music and different visuals that go along with. There's so many different parts that you can be involved in sports broadcasting that it is really, really amazing to see all the different people that come from all different walks of life, whether it be creative, technical, legal, all these different things that are going on behind the scenes that nobody at home knows about. And I always like to say, that you know with all the chaos that goes on when you're producing an event whether it be a football game or the all the way up to the olympics we always say if the people at home don't know about all the chaos that's going along going on behind the scenes and they're just at home enjoying what we're putting out that's a key thing to always remember what's the best piece of advice you've ever been given working in this industry the, the legendary David Michaels told me one time, the day you do a perfect show, you should quit because it'll never happen again. And you can't sit there and dwell on when things didn't go right or the mistake was made or you didn't execute the way you wanted to. Uh, you've got to be able to react in the moment and move on from the moment. If you do go into a show thinking this is going to be perfect, this is going to, I'm going to win all sorts of awards for it or anything along those lines, you're probably going to fail before you even start. So to be able to understand that preparation is the key component to any show you go to, go into, be able to react and make it the best possible show you can, despite anything else that happens. That's what you take away at the end of the day. All right. We talked about what advice you've been given. Uh, Considering all the many changes that have been taking place in sports broadcasting with technology and the way things are produced, what advice would you give to someone who's interested in this industry now? The key piece of advice I can give anybody who wants to get into this industry is you have to be willing to to wear many hats. You have to be able to wear multiple hats. If you think that you're just going to come in and be a director, you're not going to you're not going to find a lot of opportunities if that's, that's all you want to do. You've got to be able to once you get your opportunity, you get your foot in the door, not only do you do the job that you've been hired to do, but you're willing to do any other job that may come up. That's what's going to make you the most valuable in this industry right now is to be able to show that you have the ability to play multiple roles, any different role, but you're also flexible to try to learn something new and to try to be good at something new. Those are the key things I can tell people right now, especially now that the technology that we used to rely upon for television broadcasting is now more at a consumer level where you can get your hands on it outside of a TV truck, outside of a a studio environment. 
and learn as much as you always can. I've always told people because this industry, you're transitory. What I mean by that is I know of only one person, maybe two, that have worked at the same place they started at at the beginning of their career. You will find that you will move from different jobs to different networks to different entities. And I always say, learn as much as you can at your current job for your next job, because that's what's going to make you valuable in the long run. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more on that. And and I believe that that's what's been a major part of my progression in this industry. You know, not only can I produce and direct, but I can do graphics if I need to. I can associate direct. I can run camera. If I had to, I had to, I could jump on the switcher. I mean, there's so many other roles out there. And if you're not able to to at least tap into some of those while you're working on a production, it can limit some some people from making progress. Well, and, and the key part of that too, Don, is the fact that everything you mentioned, if you have experience as a camera operator, a tape operator, EVS operator, any of those areas, when you get into a leadership role, especially in the producer chair or the director's chair, you know what goes into that job. You've done it. You know what it takes to do that job. And so you become a better leader. You become, it makes your team more valuable because you know how it works and you know how to talk to people to make sure that your vision is captured. And that's so important in your growth in this industry is, you know, understanding you need to have those tools before you ever get into the hot seat, the hot seat of being a producer, the hot seat of being a director, or the hot seat of being an executive. If you understand that from basically you got your hands dirty, you're going to make it in this industry. I really can't agree with you more on that. It is it is so important that people are well-rounded, I think in pretty much anything, but especially in TV these days with the way things are going and, and uh, the, the way that um, productions are being done. Well, Dean, uh, thanks for spending some time with me. I always appreciate uh, talking to you about stuff like this and, uh, you know, appreciate everything that you've done. I know I know I already know a lot about what you do, but uh, I didn't realize some of the complexities that you've uh, had to go through to get there. But I, you know, I can honestly say that I value our friendship that we've built over the years. And, uh, and thanks for guiding me through these Olympic sports, um, you know, the non-traditional sports and providing me an opportunity to help get those sports events out to our viewers. Well, thanks, Don. And I hope anybody who listens to this understands, you know, the passion that all of us have for what we do. And, you know, the opportunities are out there for you. All right. That was my friend, Dean Walker, sports production executive and coordinating producer. Dean has worn many hats in this industry, which gives him a broader perspective on what it takes to make those unusual or non-traditional sports entertaining. And he's definitely one of the few people I've worked with who knows the intricacies of many international sports that are now gaining a bigger audience here in the U.S., So the next time you watch the Olympic Games or any sport that you may not have seen before, hopefully you'll have a better idea of what goes into how it gets to your device. On the next Sports in the Making podcast, I talk with former Major League Baseball player Jimmy Serrano, who had a cup of coffee with the Kansas City Royals as a pitcher. We talk about his journey to get to the big leagues, what his thoughts are on Major League Baseball's proposal to eliminate minor league teams, 
as well as his perspective on sign stealing, a hot topic in baseball this year. If you have any suggestions on what you'd like to know more about in sports or maybe someone you'd like to hear from, drop me a line at sportsinthemaking.com or contact me on Facebook, Twitter, or LinkedIn. And if you have any questions, I'd love to include them in a future episode with your name. Wherever you listen to this podcast, I'd appreciate it if you like it, share it, and leave positive reviews on your social media channels. Also, be sure to subscribe to Sports in the Making so you don't miss out on any future episodes. And you can also catch up on previous ones. I'm your host, Don Cardona. Thank you for listening to Sports in the Making.